0: Hello and welcome back to another Replay episode, this time with the brilliant Catelyn Moran. She is an award-winning columnist, author and scriptwriter and someone I've been following for years. She is perhaps best known for her multi-award winning bestseller, How to Be a Woman, which has now been published in 28 countries and it went on to sell millions of copies. Around the time of recording this episode, she had just released a follow-up book 10 years later called More Than a Woman. So we talk about this book mainly in this episode, why she wrote it, being a woman in your 40s, being a mother, helping a loved one who is struggling. And of course, there's some writing tips in there. But it was so fun talking about where she is now, where she was then, and everything that's happened in between. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Catelyn Moran. I realized that it's to the day two years ago that I interviewed you in Bath do you remember that
1: I was trying to remember where it was yeah we were in that room and we couldn't find the wine as far as I remember or I was trying to get cider and then smoke out of the window I mean I mean that's my usual situation in any situation so
0: (laughs) I had the classic experience of interviewing you so it was amazing also I remember you showing me a trailer on your computer of how of how to build a girl with Beanie and then I saw it on Amazon Prime the other night and it's amazing
1: oh thank you it was such a joy and a delight to do like you know I mean it was I, I I will be honest I only realized that I'd actually done a film, I think that's the technical term, when two days ago they sent the shooting script over for me to sign off before they put it online, because you put all um, scripts of movies once they've been made online so people can see them. And I suddenly looked at the script and just went, oh my God, I wrote a film. (laughs) Literally every word in here I wrote. And then some people went away and made that happen. And Beanie Feldstein from Booksmart did it. And then it had Emma Thompson in. And then, so while it's happening, you just don't really get your head around it. And I suddenly had this moment where I, I had a little tear and went, oh my God. I did a thing. That was quite big. Like kind of I felt retrospectively really embarrassed for the fuss and the hoo-ha that it had caused.
0: <laughs> it's huge, it's huge, but I'm sure a lot of people had their own tear, you know, having read your books for so long and then suddenly it's all brought to life in such a beautiful way. Oh. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um so we're here to talk about your new book, More Than a Woman, and obviously everyone lost it when the announcement came out because I think everyone remembers how old they were and where they were when they read how to be a woman. So it's 10 years on. It's crazy. Does it feel like 10 years?
1: Well, that was quite weird. Yeah. When it was about, it was about eight years ago that someone went, it's coming up to a decade since that came out. And obviously I had thought it came out about six weeks ago. Um, and that was what started me thinking, like kind of, oh, you know, because I'd always thought that I probably would write a sequel to How to Be a Woman, but I thought that it would probably happen when I was 80 and that 90% of it would be about the menopause and then the other 20% would just be about dying because I didn't know that there was this whole middle section that between being young and screwed up and trying to work out sort of, you know, your sexual style and your feminism and how to sort of find good friends and love and dying, uh, which is your middle age, which is an entirely different bag of fish Uh, which is a phrase I'd like to popularize, um, uh, which does need a whole book explaining it to people and just giving middle-aged women some fun like a, sort of part of the reason for doing it was just realizing that when I looked around for sort of any templates about how to deal with middle age or any middle-aged heroes, that we're generally very poorly served in culture for middle-aged women who are sort of getting shit done all together. We've got loads of young hot messes, whom I love. Mm-hmm. We've got flea bags and our I May Destroy You's and I Hate Susie's and, you know, we've, there's been a boom time for brilliant, messy young women sort of like, you know, sorting out their lives and, and being sort of truthful and messy. But like once you get to middle age... There's nothing. You're either kind of a mum in a sitcom going, oh, look at the mess you've made, Gary. Um, Or you're a kind of kick-ass boss who has three lines in a film and that's it. And I was like, no, there's a whole hinterland here that I need to talk about. And so I simply got the laptop out and started typing.
0: It's funny. The opening chapter, I was just... laughing out loud I think that chapter a lot of people have said it hooks you in because you're just on the floor laughing and you were just so funny and you meet your old self 10 years ago so mid-30s
1: yes so it's the yeah, 35 It's the day that I finished writing How to Be a Woman and me, now at the age of 45, goes back to visit me at the age of 35 <laughs> on the day that I finished How to Be a Woman. Sitting there smugly going, yes, I think I know everything about being a woman now and it's going to be the easy bit. Middle age is just going to be sitting around and having long launches with gal pals and wearing a pair of elegant linen trousers that somehow miraculously won't be creased around the crotch. And I'm just going to have a fabulous time. And uh, of course the me now goes back to some my younger self that ha, 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 "Ha that's not what middle age is at all because what you realize as you get older is that when you're younger the luxury that you have is that your problems are your problems it's just stuff that you're screwing up or you haven't worked out and the stakes are relatively low because it's just you when you get to middle age your problems are everyone else's problems you are you've got parents who are ailing getting ill and confused or maybe dying you've got teenagers whose lives are exploding you've got friends who are divorcing you're possibly trying to keep a relationship together and you are an unpaid carer and lover. And your job is basically to hold the threads of society together with your hands for no pay. And that's what being a middle-aged woman is.
0: Mm, seriously. I mean, you forget, don't you, that it's middle-aged women pretty much that literally hold like society together. And the book is obviously talking about quite quite deep and serious topics, as we'll discuss later on. But I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about why you do write with such humor. I mean, you you are... One of my favourite things you wrote, actually, was um, quite randomly that article you wrote about how you couldn't stop listening to get lucky. And I think <laughs> I think about it all the time. So it just makes me laugh. But I think humour gets the message across in a more powerful way in some ways.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding of, about sort of what feminism is or who can do feminism or the right way to do feminism. Like I do sort of sometimes have to remind people that feminism isn't a science Like you can't look through a special microscope and see the feminist isotope. It's not something that we've discovered. Uh, There are no laws of science to it. There's no Bible of feminism or God of feminism. There isn't a feminist city. It's just women and men uh, occasionally across the world identifying a problem to do with gender and then naming it and discussing it and consciousness raising about it. And then hopefully providing some solutions or starting a conversation so other people can go, oh, I have that problem too, I've got a solution for it. So it's this entirely crowdsourced cultural event. And sometimes I get people sort of saying that I'm not a proper feminist or that I'm not doing feminism correctly. And it's like, well, where have you written this definition of what feminism should be? Like I I believe that if you're trying to talk about the problems in people's lives and how you might uh, solve them, if you possibly can, why not make it entertaining and funny and warm and inclusive as well as full of facts and sort of outrage and anger and sympathy and, and consciousness raising. Like I think women deserve for the, the, the idea of them being equal and then progressing in society to be readable and enjoyable mm. and friendly. Um, you know, if you try and hide all the feminism away in a cool academic secret place uh, in books that only 20 people would want to read, I love cool hardcore academic feminism. It's totally necessary, but we have, room for all the types. And I'm very happy that, you know, time after time, I, I get people coming up to me going, I didn't know what feminism was. And I didn't know I was a feminist. And I picked up your book because it looked funny. And then I learned some stuff. And now I am a feminist and I believe in feminism. Like, very happy. Yeah. For that. I'm happy to be
0: that kind of feminist. <laughs> and I think that's what people would describe how to be a woman. The fact that it was this like gateway drug into everything else. And I think that's what you do so amazingly is, you know, if you're sat at home watching Lorraine, you're having a laugh about it. And then you think, hmm, I'm going to go and read up on this a bit more. Because I think you've said in the past that feminism is like a patchwork quilt of everyone doing their bit. I suppose someone thinking, oh, this is a 10 years on of feminism. Where have we got to? It's not like a polemic on the global, global feminism. It's your bit.
1: Totally. And it's not completely diverse and representative because... I can't think of anything in all of human history and culture, whether it's written by men or women, that has included the experience of every single man or women in the world. Like, kind of, you can't. Like, kind of, I'm, I'm always going, look, this is my experience. I've generally tried to th- write about things that would generally be experienced by women, no matter what their colour or ability or, or socioeconomic bracket. But, you know, it's, it's of course, it's just generally stuff that I've observed um, and stuff that I know about. And, you know, and if there are other people out there from different backgrounds who've written about the different experience of being a woman, then I believe that it's my job to give them a platform and talk about them and to let them tell their stories. But I have a deep uncomfortableness with trying to tell other people's stories or trying to represent other people. Like that seems that's incorrect. I mean, from a business point of view, that's their story. And, you know, hopefully that's their book or their film. And like, I don't want to be stealing their experiences and earning money off it. That
0: seems incorrect to me. It reminds me of something you've said for years about how we've only scraped the surface of women's stories anyway, and how we need hundreds of books about being a woman, because there are hundreds of books about being a man, and we don't expect one man to um, encompass everything.
1: People like specific things. You know, you want to tell things that you know are true and small, and, you know, hopefully the majority of them feel applicable to everybody else.
0: Yes, yes. There's so much in this book from, you know, some really amazing storytelling about your family to literally the bit in the book where I thought I was the only person on the planet who had a boyfriend that sneezed really loudly. Very (laughs) specific. (laughs) Yeah,
1: the things that have got the most traction have been, yeah, people going... My partner sneezes and coughs and vomits insanely loudly. (laughs) We have the same reflux systems and sinal systems, men and women, but why are men so loud and women so quiet? Um, The stairs system is another one that has uh, uh, caused a lot of identification and rage because women know what the stairs system is. You put something at the bottom of the stairs and then anybody who's walking past with free hands picks up the things that are at the bottom of the stairs and takes them to a top. It's a very simple system, which all women know, but men, it seems, do not. Because the amount of men, when I went on um, Saturday Kitchen on Saturday and explained the stair system, I just had hundreds of men in my timeline going, oh, that's what it is. Because I've just been <laughs> climbing over all the stuff at the bottom of the stairs. Like, I've been like Chris Bonham mountaineering over it. Like, I've had to stretch over five stairs in my legs to get past it. I didn't only want to get to take it upstairs. So, has been a lot of pennies dropping this weekend, which I've been very pleased about. <laughs> best way to get stuff across is through stories like kind of this that's the thing you know if you've got an academic theory and you're using all these buzz phrases and stuff they're very useful and I read all of those but like kind of you know most people don't have time to read that stuff or don't find it fun which is fair enough so if you just tell a story about how things like emotional labor play out in a little scenario so everyone's like oh yeah I know that I do not know the phrase emotional labor but I know this right okay right I'm on board now.
0: So I just wanted to talk to you about the serious, you know, parts of the book for a moment, because um, I went to see you read out the most beautiful letter ever at Letters Live years ago now, maybe like four-ish years ago, and um, you know, it was to young women, and it was the women who who you'd meet on your book tours, and they were suffering, and you really noticed that they were going through things, and literally everyone was crying in the audience, like everyone. And obviously in your book, you talk about your own daughter. She was 13. She kind of went through her own troubles. And I and that bit, I think, has just really resonated on a deeper level, hasn't it? It's been really shared around the internet and, and really affected people.
1: Hugely, yeah. Well, I was, uh, I mean, I've always been very aware of particularly teenage girl pain, uh, I guess because of my background. And also I think, you sort of often the way that you get into feminism is just being aware of how difficult it is to be a woman and how much pain there is and how few words there are to describe it and how much of your experience is hidden and not spoken about. So, I was always aware of how difficult it was to be a young woman. And at the live events I would do, I'd meet many, many troubled women. And halfway through uh, the last but one promotional tour, at the same time as I was dealing with these very troubled young women, um, I was dealing with my own troubled young women at home. So, I felt a particular resonance whenever I was meeting these young women because. The thing about mental illness, and my daughter was anxious and depressed, and that developed into an eating disorder. It started when she was 11. Uh, finished by the time she was just coming up to 15. She's now fully recovered, um, which is just extraordinary. And she is the one that told me to write about it. And she's my hero for doing that. And she was very sort of blunt and frank about it. She said, you know, for my generation, mental illness does not have this stigma. We talk about it on social media. We see it in the same way that we would leukemia or a broken bone. But your generation, our parents, you were brought up in a time when it was massively stigmatized and associated with a huge amount of guilt um, and secrecy. And you are our carers and you are screwing up, helping us get better because you don't know how to deal with this. And I had thought that I was generally a very good parent. Um, I you know, so sort of we're very open, very close, uh, sort of, you know, I'm always around. Um, but the weakness that I had was that I was scared of her sadness. I was raised in a house where you weren't sad, no one cared. Uh, you just you just jollied it away or just ignored it. And if you're dealing with a mental illness, you can't do that. So the variety of tactics that I used in the early years of her illness to try and help her were completely incorrect. I tried to reason her out of it. I would sit down on her bed and give her a TED talk about nutrition and food and exhaustion and how this would all be making things worse. That did not work. Um, You can't incentivize someone with a mental illness to get better because they are riddled with guilt and they will not accept you know a present in exchange for eating you can't punish them because they're punishing them themselves uh, there's no point in being sad yourself around them that just makes them feel worse what she really needed me to do and i when i finally realized that that's what i did was to say what i saw acknowledge what was happening go you are sad you are anxious you are angry i see that i am not scared of it i will love you no matter what and we are going to get through this together I'm not pretending this isn't happening anymore. And as soon as I learned how to do that, things started to improve massively. Uh, massively helped by the fact I'd got a book by um, a writer called Eva Musby, uh, which is, I think it's just called Dealing with Anorexia. And she gives you scripts of what to say to someone who is dealing with an eating disorder, which I found massively useful. And if anyone out there is dealing with it, I hugely recommend this book. It's very hard yeah. to think of the right things to say when you're dealing with someone who's very upset and troubled. So you just use these script and it gets you through. So, um, so I was enormously proud when she wanted me to write about it. And the response has been... I mean, everything I hoped and a million times more when we serialized the time, I had hundreds and hundreds of letters, mainly from parents, going, because you have some kind of public platform and you generally present as being, you know, fairly sorted and, you know, sort of fairly settled, the fact that you admitted this had happened in your family finally made me realize that this isn't a stigma and nothing that I've done wrong. It is an illness like any other. And I now feel that I can talk about it and I can get help and I don't feel guilt and I will help my child get better which for someone who just most of all even more than entertaining wants to be useful in their writing which is what I want to do was just the best thing that I could hear I know already that it's helped so many people and it is all down to my girl so
0: Mm.
1: she is my hero
0: yes oh so so amazing and the fact that there is there is no kind of set formula on how to deal with these things. Like even if you're not a parent, I think we've all probably had a friend who's going through something and I've done it where I've like done the wrong thing, but I've had such good intentions with trying to help. I've learned a lot from, from what you've written.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, this, this, you know, these are the things that sort of, you know, we don't have discussions about how to help people who are troubled and particularly with mental illness. You know, it's only very recently that we've started having proper open conversations about it. So, you know, and of course, if you love someone with them, whether it's a friend or a child or a family member of that you want to help them, but you just don't know how and you can end up doing terrible things by mistake, which obviously makes things even worse and makes you feel even worse. So any bit of information that I can find that I can relate to people, like I'm just so thrilled to be able to be a conduit for everything that we know and ways that we can help people who are in trouble.
0: Yes. And that is so amazing to hear that she is recovered and doing well and everything. That's amazing.
1: I mean, almost far too well. She was skateboarding (laughs) on Cider last night. So I was like, you are, you are maybe too well now. That was, that was (laughs) the maybe maybe, maybe stop being quite so full of life now
0: (laughs) (laughs) but it it makes sense that um you know I guess one of my earlier questions actually was going to be um about your writing and how you know whether it's a story that you're ready to tell so it makes sense that um that she's better now that you could write about it maybe in that way
1: yeah, and it was huge because, I mean, she was at the height of her illness when I was writing the script for How to Build a Girl, and that led to a lot of the decisions that I made when we were adapting it, Like because she, the the main character who's based on me, is a big girl. A big girl on screen who's a heroine, who isn't constantly being told by other people what she looks like. Like, even uh, Rebel Wilson, one of the biggest stars in the world in Pitch Perfect, she's called Fat Amy, and all of her jokes are about her being fat and eating too much. And I was like... I think we don't need to do this anymore. I think we can just show a big, confident, beautiful girl on screen and just let her be living her life and that not be one of her problems. Um, yeah. so was, she looks amazing. Oh, I, mean, she's, I mean, you can't make Beanie Feldstein look anything other than absolutely ravishing, even when she's pretending to be me at the age of 16. Um, she just looked incredible and she's such sunshine. Um, the one thing that I changed from my childhood, other than her not being teased for her size, was I made that character wear a top hat because I wanted a top hat so much when I was a teenager, but all my clothes were from jumble sales. And astonishingly, there weren't that many top hats in jumble sales in Wolverhampton in 1986. So uh, that was a little bit of wish fulfillment there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know there are so many little clues and bits in there where you just think, that is so, I mean, it's obviously a, a fictional tale But it's just so you I <laughs> just oh, love it Well
1: thank you well, it's such a thrill To be able to make a film Like it's such a big, You know when you realise When I finally got my head Around the fact It's a visual medium like, And it was like What can you do with film That you can't do with words And it was like let's put the God wall, let's have that, because every teenage girl on her bedroom wall has pictures of their heroes. And I was like, let's have those heroes come to life and be played by my now modern day heroes. So we've got Lily Allen and Mel and Sue and Sharon Horgan and Lucy Punch and Michael Sheen on there playing March and the Brontes and uh, Sigmund Freud. And let's have them come alive and, and give her advice because one of the things I wanted to do with the coming up age movies is they're usually about a teenage girl surrounded by her girlfriends. And like, you're strong if you've got your gal pals and you've got your girl gang, which is true. But you might also be a teenage girl who doesn't have any friends. Um, you know, I, I didn't have any. And I wanted to write a movie about um, lonely teenage girls and where you get your advice and strength from. And it tends mm-hmm. to be heroes. You imagine what oh they're saying. Yeah. So that was, that was a thrill to write that scene. I was like, yes, let's have Lily Allen turn up and be Elizabeth Taylor. She'll look amazing.
0: <laughs> Weirdly, I had that feeling again in the pandemic when it first happened. I was like... I'm going to be okay if I've got these five books. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, we clicked yeah. these. That was one of the things that we learned in the pandemic, the, the importance of culture. Like, you know, those, especially those first couple of weeks, you know, it was books and movies and songs that stopped us all from going crackers because, you know, all the great artists are just, you know, That's why people, you know, love Bowie so much when he's just going, give me your hands because you're wonderful. You're not alone. Like kind of that is what all artists are saying. You're just going, I want to connect with the world, even though I might never meet you. We've kind of met somewhere in the ether when you're singing along to my song. Hello, friend, I'll never meet.
0: Totally. I feel like all of my mentors in life I've never met and they'll never know, but they've shaped me. I'm not going to ask you about your process or anything, but I did wonder for someone that's been doing it for so long. Yes. How is it like a tap that you just switch on now? Can you just kind of sit down and just do it? Because your writing, I feel, is so kind of unique in the way that it just is so energetic and it just bounces off the page and I'm like do, can you just get yourself in the zone now or do you have to psych yourself up
1: I had a huge breakthrough with my process which was because I came to like books and movies and TV writing fairly late really so in my 30s I'd had two kids and it was because of, up until that point I thought that if I wanted to write books and movies and films they'd have to be like the ones that already existed so it'd have to be something like Star Wars and it'd have to be about a teenage boy who had a magical force and was out in space and I was like well I don't have a story like that and I wouldn't know how to so I guess I'll never make a- And then there was a point in my 30s where I suddenly went, oh God, no, no, you don't do things like what already exists, because then you're fighting against a canon and all these other people. What you have to do is turn 180 degrees and go, what doesn't exist? What characters and situations and words and people um, and stories am I not seeing? And then suddenly, that's when you know. If you, and this is the, you know, if you have got lots of writers who are listening, hello, writers. Um, I guess you're not dressed. You're probably just eating sardines out of a can with your hands. That is our way. Um, it's that. It's start writing a list of what you haven't seen, and suddenly you just never run out. Like kind of every day, you read a newspaper, and you're halfway through, you're arguing. Go, but why didn't they ask this person about it? Or this doesn't. This has got nothing to do with these people. What about them? And then you go, oh, okay, I'll be the person that speaks for them or talks about this. Like you're you're looking for taboos. You're looking for. Vo- you're looking for silences, you're looking for secrets, um, you're looking for the things that when you and your friends are in the pub, they bang the table with their fists and go, why doesn't anybody ever talk about this? And once you just flip that switch in your head, you'll just keep a notebook on you at all times and just write down every single one of those. And I guarantee you by the end of a week, you'll be sitting there going, oh, I've got five books I need to write now. How am I going
0: to find the time? <laughs> yes, because I, I, I remember someone once saying that you can never get talker's block so you can't really ever get writer's block because if you can speak, you can write. And I found, and I think reading House Be a Woman, you know, all those years ago made me want to write because it, you were kind of breaking the rules. We're told to write in a certain way sometimes yes. and it's boring.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you said that because like I do divide writers into two categories. There are the ones that are kind of standing on a stage and showing off and using, you know, really complex uh, sentence construction and sort of rare words and stuff and kind of basically showing off and I do like those writers that's great but it feels that they are quite inaccessible and they just want to be admired and then the writers that I like and that I try to be like are the ones that are standing next to you and putting their arm around you and going okay this is a conversation everything I say you're going to get like kind of I'm not trying to show off or confuse you or dazzle you with stuff and I try and make everything as conversational as chatty as possible and another great technique that I found for writing is just you need to have a prose victim. It's like in your head when you're writing. So either someone you fancy that you're trying to that you're trying to write what you think they would laugh the most at, or go, oh, you're attractive. I love your I love your sexy thoughts, um, or a friend that you kind of that you would most want to write this as a letter to or conversation with. And if you're just writing at one person that you love or admire, they can be living or dead. They can be real or, or fantasy. Then that tends to clarify in your head what you want to say and how you want to say it. You're like, I want to make Mark Ruffalo want to have sex with me. (laughs) (laughs) Then I must write a lovely, sexy thing to Mark Ruffalo. Or I want my friend to read this and realise the truth about her marriage. So that is how I will write about her. So yeah, have a prose victim um, and just write a list of all secrets and taboos and run towards them and you will have a ball.
0: I love that. I love that. And it will probably change a lot I'm guessing depending on what you're working on you would maybe choose a different person
1: yes oh it's a different person each time yeah every time right. there's a fresh one I've kind of like I, I presume by the end of finishing a book or a film or a TV series that my work is done and that person now fancies me and wants to marry me so I know <laughs> conquer the heart of another one of them was one of them was to try and make richard burton fancy me which would be tricky because he is dead Uh, um there was one that was all dedicated to gonzo from the muppets because i find him quite attractive uh bill i love that
0: yours are always a a positive though because i feel like i've done it in the past where i'm trying to just i'm kind of trying to get someone back or i'm having a revenge of like someone a school teacher that said i would never write well sometimes works well,
1: listen, I, I was talking to another writer friend of mine and they, I was explaining my theory and they were like, well, everything that's ever been done in art is either to make someone fancy you or to get revenge against someone you hate. Those are the two, the two impulses. But I don't want to think about the people I hate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't no. want time of day. I don't want to give them my beautiful words and funny thoughts. Like, fuck them. The reason I hate them is because they didn't get my jokes. So I'm going to write to them.
0: Yes, exactly. Anyway, thank you so much for your time. I guess this is a cliche question, but I'm going to do it. You've probably been asked it, but do you think you're going to write one every 10 years?
1: I think so now, yeah. I'm, now I'm just realising. I like it being, the idea of it just being an episodic thing about one person's life, because I think that helps you get a handle on this thing that we call life, as uh, as Prince said in uh, Let's Go Crazy. It's... Uh, yeah, it feels it's easier to get a handle on all of human existence if you're just following one person's story every 10 years and stuff. So, so yeah. And, you know, I haven't even had the menopause yet. I mean, from what I understand, that there's loads of material there. So bring on those sweats. I'm ready to find <laughs> a million ways to describe having really sweaty bits.
0: It'll be, it'll be like the circle of life because, like, one of your daughters will then be... Of the age you were when you wrote it and it would just keep going.
1: I would hope that they would write answer books and just go, yeah, well, when mum was presenting herself as a fantastic mother back in 2011, the reality was that she was actually falling down the stairs not wearing tights, <laughs> so it's time for the truth to come out. I would love that. The
0: circle of life. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so, so much. And um, it's available now. It's flying off the shelves. And yeah, thank you for bringing us more, more of your work. It's amazing. Oh.
1: My absolute pleasure. I will see you again somewhere, hopefully with wine, uh, where I'll be smoking out of a window in a couple of years when i write the next one.
0: (laughs) Wearing a top hat.
1: Yes.